Hello everyone, my name is Cami Mondo and I'm the editor-in-chief of The Forum. You're listening to Behind the Ballot, a political podcast introducing you to the candidates running for Utah's statewide and congressional offices. In each episode, we'll be diving into different candidates' campaign platforms and addressing the issues college students care about the most. Today, you'll be hearing an exclusive interview with Devin Thorpe, who is the Democratic candidate for Utah's 3rd Congressional District. Devin Thorpe was born and raised in Utah, earning a bachelor's degree from the University of Utah in 1989 before heading to Cornell University for a graduate degree. Throughout his career, Thorpe has worked as an author, journalist, advocate, chief financial officer, and much more. He advanced to the November general election ballot during the Utah Democratic State Convention on April 25th, receiving an overwhelming majority of the vote. Because of this, he avoided a Democratic primary. Thorpe will face Republican incumbent John Curtis in November, who has held the seat since 2017. Also on the ballot is Daniel Cummings running for the Constitution Party and Thomas McNeil for the United Utah Party. Thorpe says he believes he has a good chance of taking the 3rd Congressional District, calling it a fair fight because of the third-party candidates that will help split the votes. I spoke with Devin Thorpe on July 25th, asking him more about his campaign policies, what his goals and priorities would be if he was elected, and why college student voices are critical in the 2020 election. At the time of this interview, Representative John Curtis did not respond to multiple requests for an interview with the forum. A disclaimer before we get started, some portions of the interview had to be edited out for time constraints, but you can read the full unedited interview with Devin on our website, wcforummedia.com. Thank you so much for joining me today, Devin. It's an honor. It's a privilege, Cammie. Thanks for having me. I spoke with Devin to find out more about his campaign issues and where he stands in terms of college students' highest priorities. After talking to college students on our campus and research into larger national interests, I asked Devin what his goals and priorities in office would be on five different issues. Healthcare, racial justice and police reform, immigration, climate change, and student debt. But first, I wanted to get an understanding of why he was running. First, I'm really interested in hearing... Um, kind of what made you want to run for office and what background experience you have that you think makes you qualified? Well, I've been thinking about this for about 30 years. <laughs> I, I tell people no one's more surprised than I am that I'm running because I've been thinking about it for 30 years and not doing it. But I had a 25-year finance career and time I spent working on an MBA. And then I totally shifted gears. And I kind of channeled the idealism of my youth and started writing, speaking, and talking, and podcasting about how we would solve the world's biggest problems, focusing on three areas, climate change, poverty, and global health. And I felt like, I guess I've got to do something more direct. I've got to do something more hands-on to get that real sense that I'm making a difference. And so I began looking for the thing to do. And I know you published a story about impeachment last fall. You shared that with me. Brilliant. Thank you. And it was during the impeachment trial that finally the lights went on. And I said to myself, wait a minute, I could run for Congress. That would give me an opportunity to not only advance the ball on these issues I care about, climate change, poverty, global health, but also protect and preserve democracy, which I believe was genuinely threatened by, quite frankly, let's Let's put the blame where I put the blame. The blame is on the Republicans in Congress who refuse to vote their conscience. And so I'm running against one of those congressmen that refused to vote his conscience on the impeachment. Now, he may say otherwise, but I think Mitt Romney is a national hero for having stepped up. Senator Romney and I don't agree on a lot of things, but I think he demonstrated unequivocally that if you look at the facts and circumstances surrounding the president's actions, he was 
guilty. So what was it that made you want to run for the House of Representatives versus the Senate? I am interested in what's going on in the Senate. And the Senate is incredibly important this year because it is the Senate where the impeachment vote really failed. In the House, it succeeded because there were a majority of Democrats, but in the Senate, there was not. The Senate races are very important because of that issue. But you know, of course, that there are no Senate races in Utah this year. So if I want to make a difference in Washington, and I do, I must run for a House seat. I was doing some background research to the third congressional seat, and it looks like there hasn't been a Democrat that's held that seat since 1996. So, And you're also running against an incumbent. So what experience you have and goals and priorities you think could help you win that seat? Well, yeah, great point. But I am confident that this is a winnable race for me. I am not in this just to hold... John Curtis's feet to the fire. I am not in this just to make a political point or raise issues. I want to go to Washington. I want to make a difference in the House of Representatives. And so I have to figure out how I can do that. I believe that uh, Congressman Curtis is a moderate to liberal guy. And I believe he genuinely cares about the environment. But here's what's going on. I, I have called John Curtis a climate delayer because he's not a climate denier. He is just unwilling to actually do anything about climate change of substance. He has a rather bad, a poor voting record on the environment, even though I believe he truly believes climate change is a real thing and it should be addressed. But his party isn't going to let him vote the way he should in order to protect and preserve the environment. And we see that in his voting record. And here's the thing. Our polling, our internal polling suggests that he has only a 34% approval rating. Well, it would be impossible if there were not a third-party candidate in the race who is running to John Curtis's right. His name is Daniel Cumming. And Daniel is a medical doctor. He is a strict constitutionalist. He's running for the Constitution Party. Our polling suggests that up to 18% of the district could vote for uh, Dr. Cummings. And in a world where 18% of the district votes for Dr. Cummings, this is a fair fight. And then here's what gives us the final advantage. In Utah, we are seeing a phenomenon I, or I call the, the Romney Republic. There are a group of people who are Republicans, committed Republicans, but who are absolutely not going to vote for Donald Trump. Now, that does not mean that they will vote for me automatically. But if they determine of their own will that, in fact, Congressman Curtis is aiding and abetting a man they do not respect and will not vote for, I think we can convince them to vote for me. And if we bring over just a few Republicans, along with many of the independents and we keep the Democrats, we will win. And the third district will send a Democrat to Congress for the first time in 20 years. Then we got into the issues. There are just five main issues that I'll ask you about and how you would address those if you were elected. First, I asked Thorpe about healthcare. According to a study from Forbes magazine in 2018, healthcare was the number one issue among all voters. This can also be seen among college students, especially in recent years. A lot of people at my school, at least at Westminster, voted for Bernie Sanders in the primary for his Medicare for All. So if you were elected, what are your thoughts on the current state of healthcare in this country and what would you do to address these issues? There is no question that 
Healthcare is a mess in the United States. The Affordable Care Act passed during the Obama years was a stopgap at best, and it leaves many people poorly insured. I'm one of them. I have an Affordable Care Act policy, and I have a $12,000 deductible, which means the first $12,000 I spend on healthcare every year come right out of my pocket. Now, I am grateful to be in a situation where I actually have $12,000, but I recognize many people aren't. But even though I have $12,000, I will avoid spending that if I can any way possible. People are filing bankruptcy because they can't afford health care. This simply doesn't happen in other countries. Other industrialized countries, people do not file bankruptcy because they can't afford health care. So we have a disastrous system on our hands. And yet, as poor as it is, Republicans have been, ever since the Affordable Care Act passed, it has been under assault, not only by Congress, but by state attorneys general who've been suing to dismantle it piece by piece by piece. And slowly but surely, they're succeeding. Now, it is unlikely that a Medicare for all plan will come forward as the democratic solution. But it's my commitment to work to pull him in that direction, to make sure that whatever health care plan we do put forward covers everyone affordably, period. Next, we addressed racial justice in terms of the civil rights movement seen across the world today that's being led by the Black Lives Matter movement. Anybody who looks at the news knows there are issues around police reform and racial justice across the country. We've seen it in Utah. We've seen it all across the country. What are your thoughts on the current state of policing in this country? One of the things that inspires me is seeing that, by and large, the people in the third district accept as a simple fact that Black Lives Matter and with the implication that they understand that the reason that hashtag, that movement is so important is because some people act as if they don't. It's not Black Lives Matter because all lives matter. People are recognizing Black Lives Matter in spite of the fact that some people behave as if they don't. So. I think we're there. We're at a tipping point in our journey towards social justice. I'm excited by that. When we talk about police reform, there are a whole range of things that come up. And I would say among them are the idea that, you know, we simply need to ban chokeholds and we need to hold police officers more accountable when they misbehave. I, I think that's not enough. I want to step back and just re remind people that, in fact, police officers wear bulletproof vests for a reason. It is a risky job, and there are real heroes in and among our police forces. I don't blame police officers so much as I blame systems and processes. And I think we sometimes forget that some of our policing practices and traditions date back to very racist times. Some date back to the era of tracking runaway slaves. Some track back to Jim Crow era. Some practices were developed before the civil rights movement. We have got to review and reflect on every single aspect of policing. And in Camden, New Jersey, they did that. And, and what they did is they just ultimately decided to start over. They completely abolished the police force and the police department, and they started over. So there are strategies, there are uh, ways for us to do this. I'm very uncomfortable blaming cops. Of course, there are some bad cops, but when we focus on bad apples, it makes it seem as if the problem is the apple. Problem is the barrel. We've got to fix the barrel because the apples go bad in the barrel because of the way the barrel is structured. 
bad analogy, but, but I honor and revere our police officers. I respect and I'm grateful for the sacrifices they make, the risks they take on our behalf. We need to remember that, but we also need to be looking at substantive material reforms to eliminate the racial bias in the system. So as part of fixing that barrel, you say, or system, there's also that idea of defunding the police. Would you support a variation of that, or would you prefer to call it something else? Like, what would your ideas surrounding that be? Yeah, that phrase is so, oh boy, it's just so politically explosive. Let's stay away from that. But let's ask ourselves the question, are there things that we ask police officers to do that we could ask someone else to do instead or first? Is it always the best strategy to send someone whose primary training is on how to arrest criminals, investigate crimes, and shoot people? The right one to send when someone's having a psychotic break, when someone is homeless and drugged and in trouble. I think we can rethink and reevaluate some of these situations. And of course, we may conclude that in some, some or most of these cases, yes, sending the police is the right thing. But let's ask the questions. Let's explore that. At the time of this interview, ICE had just issued its statement it would bar international students from staying in the country if their schools were conducted all online. They eventually backtracked on that idea one day before I spoke with Devin Thorpe, deciding instead it would allow international students to remain in the country even if classes were online. But it ruled that newly enrolled students, so first-year international students just starting college, would not be allowed to stay if they didn't go to school in person. I asked him what his thoughts are regarding international students in DACA and what he would prioritize in office. Several international students on many college campuses, especially mine. Um, so what are your thoughts surrounding DACA and then like thoughts on supporting international students that come here? DACA, absolutely. That needs to be made uh, the law of the land quickly in the new Congress, where and when it can pass. Because right now, it is operating only under the authority of the president. President Obama unilaterally created this. And we've got to make this law. Uh, we also need to be looking at our international students. Uh, it makes no sense to essentially force graduates out of the country. We've got to create a path to permanence for uh, international students. And we've got to be looking at our vast numbers of undocumented immigrants. We've got to find a way. It may not be reasonable. It may not be achievable to give them a path to citizenship, but let's give them a path to permanence that will allow them to cross the border back and forth. And so what we will see is not more immigration, but less if we create this path to permanence that will allow people to go back and forth as guest workers or whatever else we want to call it. We need to be working on that. So what would some goals or priorities be for you if you were elected, especially amid the coronavirus and increasing feelings of xenophobia? That's a great question. And there is no question that international travel and even domestic travel has a big impact on the spread of the coronavirus. So it's not crazy to be regulating that carefully and thoughtfully at this time. But some of what the president has done is not careful or thoughtful. It is arbitrary and capricious and inherently racist or bigoted in some way, either toward Muslims or brown people. And that kind of behavior has got to stop. We have got to work out our issues so that we keep Americans safe without you know, this sort of bigoted response that we see from the president of the United States. 
Much of Thorpe's campaign centers around climate change, which is a massive concern among college students. In fact, The Hill reported in 2019 that climate change was one of the top concerns among young voters, with climate change as the top priority for 34% of Gen Z voters and 27% of millennials. Another big issue that addresses college students is climate change, especially as they believe they are the generation that's going to have to deal with the most drastic effects of it. So I was curious what specific plans or policies you would want to work on in Congress. Let me just echo the point or punctuate with this observation. You and many of your classmates will be alive in 2100. So when people talk about what is the status of the climate of the planet in 2100, for the rest of us, it's academic. For you, it's reality. Absolutely, that is one reason why your generation should be taking this seriously. Of course, there is no good excuse for any of us in the past to have not taken this seriously. I want you to understand that as I talk about climate change, I have taken this seriously for a long time, my personal lifestyle. And it's clear that the Paris Accord was too little, too late, and yet the President of the United States pulled us out. I've been inspired by states and municipalities around the country, including in Utah, that have agreed to adopt the standards of the Paris Climate Accord anyway, including in my district, Moab. We have got to do it. But the great news is this won't be painful. We will be experiencing a growing economy as we invest aggressively in building a clean tech economy. We should all be excited about this. This is the best news ever. The new economy we are building is amazing. And I can't wait to accelerate that in Washington. All the investments we make in fighting climate change, or most of them, have positive financial benefits, right? So whether the government makes the investment or private industry makes the investment, there is a financial return that will come back to taxpayers and or to investors or employees. This is amazing. Get ready to ride. This is going to be great. Lastly, I talked to Thorpe about education both K-12 and college education, and what his thoughts are on the rising costs and struggles to pay off student loans. The last issue that I have here is the cost of education, either K-12 through or even college education, and also it's just student debt. My K-12 priority is actually not K-12 at all, although it directly relates. It's the pre-K. We've got to get universal pre-K, and there's a reason. There is extraordinarily good data, and I think your training and background, if I recall, you're in psychology, right? Sociology, yeah. Mm -hmm. Sociology. Mm -hmm. So you looked at this. A third grader who is on path, is, is at grade level, reading and doing math at grade level, will succeed in life, almost certainly. One who is not is terribly jeopardized. We focus on making sure that kids arrive to the first day of kindergarten with an adequate vocabulary, an understanding of the ABCs, and they can count to 10. And they will be on path, they will be on grade level in third grade because they were ready on the first day of kindergarten. And they will graduate high school and be able to go on to college or a skilled trade, and they will contribute successfully to society. Universal pre-K for me is the top priority in K-12 education. But let's talk about student loans. It could wreck your life on the current model. Here's what we're doing. We're borrowing money from rich people, institutions, and other countries to lend it to students. Now over a trillion dollars that we borrow, federal government borrows at 2% and then lends at 6 or 7%. In other words, the federal government is profiteering off of students. It is absolutely absurd. So one of the things that I am most eager to do is to reduce the cost of the interest on student loans 
to the rate we're paying to borrow that money. So that at a minimum, the United States federal government is not profiteering off of students. One of the specific things I want to do is already almost all universities and colleges receive some federal assistance. And so what I want to do is work toward, develop a path and a plan toward incentivizing affordability at all universities, including the private ones. Overall, Devin Thorpe said no matter who voters are looking for at the seat, it's just important to vote in 2020, especially college students. If you could just give a final statement on your campaign as a whole and why college students should be using their voice to vote. Yeah, I really appreciate, Cami, the opportunity to visit with you today. You're a great host. I appreciate your patience with me and inviting me to be here. I commend you for doing a great job conducting this interview, so thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Here's the thing. This is the election of my lifetime, people much older than I am are saying the same thing. This is the most important election in generations. And the important thing isn't whether or not people vote for me. The important thing is whether or not students vote. And college students have not a great record actually turning out to vote. So the point I would want to make today in closing is not so much that you should vote for me. I hope you will. I hope my arguments resonate with you on climate change, on healthcare, on college tuition. I hope those messages are helpful. I hope you appreciate at some level that my issues are the issues of Generation Z. That said, the most important thing, the message you should take away from this is to just vote in your lifetime. There may never be an election that will have bigger impact on this country. But if we don't exercise our right to vote in this election, if we don't elect Joe Biden as the president of this country, I fear for your very lives. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking the time out to talk to me and do all this. Oh, Cammie, you're great. Thank you. And that's a wrap. Thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Ballot, introducing you to candidates so they are more than just a name on an envelope. Read the full profile on Devin Thorpe on our website, wc4media.com. And make sure to check out our social media accounts for more updates, at wc4media. In our next episode, we'll be talking to Democratic candidate for governor, Chris Peterson, and his running mate, Karina Brown, to find out more about their campaign. See you next time.